At first, this morning's New Testament passage might not seem like a story about neighboring. It's about two sisters and the different approach each one takes in her relationship with Jesus. When one thinks about this passage, it really is about one's one sister's ability to relax the connection between time and productivity, an ability, as it turns out, that is absolutely crucial to the art of neighboring. Because this story is about slowing down and being attentive to Jesus, after I read the passage, David is going to be giving us a moment of silence at Jesus' feet, and actually it's me, but whatever as it were, to concentrate on Jesus' voice to each of us. Please attend the reading as I read from Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by herself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord said and answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Only indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Here ends the scripture lesson. Contemplate this lesson silently as we thank God for the scriptures. So we are three weeks into our summer worship series, which we have titled The Art of Neighboring Revisited. And we're basically asking, what if, what if Jesus meant for us to love our literal neighbors? Yes, of course, Jesus intends for us to love more than our literal neighbors, but if As it appears, God has purposefully placed each one of us at a particular address, on a particular street or a particular apartment, then it seems clear that love your neighbor begins with those households to which God has placed us in closest proximity. And so this summer, we are taking up a challenge together as a congregation. It's kind of an experiment. What would happen if each one of us, each one of us as a congregation simply decided to do a better job getting to know the eight households that are in closest proximity to us, our eight immediate neighbors, however you want to define that. And uh, in order to inspire us to do this, two weeks ago, we handed out this fridge magnet. 
And if you look at it, there's a diagram, there's your home in the middle, and there is your eight immediate neighbors. Odds are that your neighborhood doesn't look exactly like that. You'll have to interpret this. If you didn't get one of these magnets, there's a stack on each of the ushers' tables, the little stands outside the door. There's a stack on the welcome table. Please grab one. Please take it home. Put it on the fridge because throughout the summer, it's going to be there to inspire you to take some concrete step as you grow in the art of neighboring. As I said two weeks ago, that begins with just learning the names of the folks that live in those homes. And that's a challenge for a whole lot of us. Most of us aren't there. That might be your task for the whole summer, but also to ask God, what would be the next step that God would have you to take? Now, as your pastor, of course, it is my hope that these last two Sundays, as you've heard Pastor Kurt and me describe this summer challenge, as we've described this invitation to cultivate the art of neighboring, it's my hope that each Sunday you went home excited, that you went home motivated and inspired about this adventure in neighboring that we've all embarked upon, about letting God teach each one of us how to be better neighbors but I know better. <laughs> in fact, as I imagine myself in your shoes, or maybe more accurately, in your pews, as I think about, okay, what would this be like if I was in the congregation and there was the pastor up front, all excited about this summer challenge, all excited about getting to know my eight neighbors better, and then giving me this magnet I have a hunch how I would feel. Chances are, I would feel a flash of annoyance. A flash of annoyance at this challenge, at this whole neighboring thing, at this magnet. Because as worthy and commendable as getting to know my neighbors might be, the prospect of me with my particular personality, with my particular commitments that I already have, with my particular set of neighbors, the, pros the prospect of me inserting myself into the lives of these eight households full of people who are relative strangers, that seems like a stretch. That seems like a commitment that I just can't make. So yes, a flash of annoyance. Is anyone willing to admit that you felt it. <laughs> All right, there's some honest people in here. As Kurt and I have talked about this summer series, as we've talked about this whole challenge, this whole invitation to the art of neighboring, we realize that this flash of annoyance, odds are, would be a relatively common response. And actually, a response that's probably driven by some valid reservations. And so we decided that instead of belittling that flash of annoyance that you feel, instead of piling on the guilt or the shame, instead we'd take that flash of annoyance seriously, that we would honor it with some empathy and with some sensitivity, because we realize the forces that are behind that flash of annoyance are pretty strong. They are forces that are wound up in our own particular personalities, the way that God's made us, but they're also forces wound up into significant commitments and responsibilities that we each already 
carry in our lives. And so last week, Kurt tackled one of these, one of these, and he acknowledged that the art of neighboring is going to look different depending on how God has wired each one of us in this room, and especially whether God has wired us as a natural extrovert or a natural introvert. And for us as pastors to insist to the introverts among you here in this room that you must suddenly barrel into the lives of your eight neighboring households all at once well, that's not really all that redemptive. In fact, it's kind of cruel. And uh, so last week, Kurt talked about right-sizing the art of neighboring, about right-sizing the anxiety that we might feel at the prospect, and not, but also right-sizing the help that God promises to provide us as we reach out. Maybe in your case, reach out to just one particular person in one of those neighboring households. And if you do... The angels will rejoice. This week, I want to acknowledge another reason why hearing this invitation to cultivate the art of neighboring, you might feel a flash of annoyance. And the reason is a matter of time, as in you don't think that you have time for one more friend, much less eight more friends. Well, in this, or this, this story that Minna just read, that Luke leaves us in his gospel, this story about Mary and Martha, which, by the way, I think is so delightfully rendered by the Chinese artist Hei Ki in this picture that's on the screen right now. This is the story that immediately follows the Love Your Neighbor passage that we used two weeks ago to launch this series. And because of that, even though there are no literal neighbors who show up in this passage, I don't think it is a stretch to extend this passage and suggest that, yes, it applies also to the art of neighboring. And it turns out that this story is actually also about a flash of annoyance. In this case, it's a flash of annoyance that Martha experiences, and she doesn't just experience it, she expresses it quite clearly to Jesus. But I want to take this idea of the flash of annoyance just one step further. As I think about the countless generations who have encountered and who have heard this particular passage from Luke, I would venture to say that over those generations, there have been many who, if they're honest, felt a flash of annoyance at Jesus, at Jesus for his mild rebuke of his good friend Martha. There have been many who found themselves thinking to themselves, hey, Jesus, that's a little bit unfair. I mean, Martha has been doing all the work after all. I need to say I'm one of those. I'm one of those who, over the years, has always had that initial response, that flash of annoyance at this passage. I wonder if any of you have. Well, if so, I think you're in good company. As I've studied and worked with this passage over my whole ministry, I've bumped into all sorts of people who feel that. So many, in fact, that eventually it kind of dawned on me. You know... Jesus knows 
that that is our response to this passage. Maybe that's the point. Maybe we as readers of Luke's gospel are meant to experience that flash of annoyance so that we find ourselves asking ourselves, hold it, where does that come from? Where does that flash of annoyance come from? What's behind it? Because when we do, we realize, we come face to face with just how invested we are in making every minute of every hour just like Martha in the kitchen. Every minute, 100% productive. Most of us, that's the side to which we err. On the other hand, how rare for many of us are those true merry moments. Now, I do not think that Jesus in any way is saying that serving others, that hospitality, that cooking, that cleaning are in themselves bad things. How could that be? Other places Jesus praises hospitality. No, I think Jesus is saying that there are moments. There are moments when there is something better. There are moments when the clock and the calendar and the phone are not, in spite of how we've all been programmed, the most important reality. There is a time for attending to Jesus and to the relationships that matter to Jesus. And at that moment, in those moments, taking off the apron, closing the laptop, putting away the list, turning off the TV, putting the calendar in the drawer is the better thing. And the uncomfortable question Jesus is asking all of us is, can we do it? Because, if we're honest, we're kind of addicted. We are kind of addicted to activity, to motion, to busyness, to making every single minute count, whether it is at work or at home or shopping or leisure or kids' sports or kids' activities or the gym. And as I think about it, the proof that we are addicted is the fact that the more time we are given, the busier we become. Each of those wonderful labor-saving devices that consumer capitalism has provided us in these last few decades as each come with this gleaming promise that finally, relieved of some trivial task, we will at last be able to slow down. Is that what happens? No, of course not. Again and again, each of these labor-saving devices has the opposite result because the device just, as, just allows us to cram more activities into our frenzy schedule because technology makes it possible to do something every minute. We feel like we should be doing something every minute. In fact, several somethings at once through the miracle of technology known as multitasking. When we think about it this way, when we think about what we have done with the, the gifts that science has given us, I think it's clear that when it comes to our frenzied pace of life, we're really not victims. We are volunteers. We need to be honest that for most of us, and there's exceptions, but for most of us, our frantic schedules are at the end of the day a choice that we have made. And if that's the case, what that means is that now and then, 
even just occasionally, we could, we could make a different choice. Now, the benefits of constant productivity are many, and they are legitimate, and they are beautiful. But what I think that Jesus is asking here in this passage, in this uh, episode about Mary and Martha, he's asking us to imagine, to imagine the sorts of other things that might be possible only, only if we choose occasionally to step off that hamster wheel of activity. And it turns out that following Jesus is one of these things. Following Jesus is all about relationships. And the funny thing about relationships is that they simply take time. In a consumer culture, we would much rather have instant relationships, instant relationship with Jesus, instant relationship with our neighbors. That would far better fit into our already relentlessly busy schedule. But we all know in our gut that love doesn't work like that. John Ortberg is the pastor of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area. He writes, love and hurry are fundamentally incompatible. Love always takes time. And time is the one thing hurried people don't have. That is why Jesus chides Martha. It's not because he's ungrateful for what she's up to in the kitchen. It's that Jesus longs that Martha experience the same sort of relationship that Mary is at that moment experiencing right there at his feet. And Jesus wants the same thing for you and for me. That we might, even if only occasionally, dare to turn off the phone to close the laptop, to tuck the to-do list in our pocket and just be with him and see what happens. In fact, I think that this passage makes an implicit promise that when we dare to build into our lives the spiritual practice of being interruptible, when in the midst of, yes, all of the good and honorable work and routine and schedule that we have, that we also expect and we also anticipate other moments, other moments when Jesus interrupts. When we do that, beautiful and priceless things are bound to happen. But, come on up here, Sue. But, and this is important. Jesus is delightfully creative where those interruption moments might take place. You see, sitting with Jesus might, like it does for Mary and Martha, mean sitting at his feet in the privacy of your own home. Just you and Jesus and maybe your sister. Be ready for that. But sitting with Jesus just as likely could mean sitting with him on a neighbor's porch or bumping into that neighbor somewhere in the community because that's where Jesus is as well. And that's where Jesus is inviting you to drop your schedule and join him. And if you do, if you choose to, to invest 
a little bit of this precious commodity time, not in your own ever and never-ending schedule, but in the lives of those other people next to whom God has planted you, you're going to discover Jesus there as well. And because of that, priceless things are bound to happen. You discover Jesus in the most unexpected places, as Sue Matson did one December in the frozen terrain of rural Alaska, which he's going to tell us about right now. Well, many of you know that Joel and I met and married in Fairbanks, Alaska, and that's where we raised our three children. So this story goes back to the days when the kids were in elementary school. And yes, it was December, and you all know, I know that December in Alaska is very dark, very cold, and very snowy. So we had decided to take the kids and come back down here where I grew up and visit my parents uh, in Bellevue. Well, airfare from Fairbanks in those days, and probably still now, is very expensive. So we decided we'd save a little money and drive the 350 miles from Fairbanks to Anchorage and fly out of Anchorage. Well, we did that. All went well. We had a wonderful visit with my folks, and we headed home to Anch back to Anchorage. Well, driving from Fairbanks to Anchorage meant also driving back from Anchorage to Fairbanks. So we got to the long-term parking at the airport, and the car started. That was wonderful, good news. It was snowing very, very heavily. It was that big flakes, heavy, wet, the, the kind that you get right when it's just below freezing, and it was maybe 30 degrees. But we weren't too worried. We were used to driving in winter weather. We were Alaskans. And um, we had good studded tires on the car, so we set off north on our 350-mile drive. Well, all went well for about the first half, but about halfway to Fairbanks, the car started going slower and slower and slower, and pretty soon it wasn't going at all, and we coasted to a stop on the side of the road. Well, Joel and I are not mechanics. We had no idea what was wrong with the car. So we decided the only thing to do was to go for help. So we fortunately had packed our cold weather gear. So we had snow pants and we had boots and we had hats and mittens and all of that. And Joel was getting suited up to um, go out and stand on the side of the road and try to flag somebody down in this horrible snowstorm, which was still falling very, very heavily. Uh, while he was getting ready to do that, the very first car that drove by pulled over and stopped. And the man was quite willing to help us, but also not a mechanic and had no idea what was wrong with our car, but offered to give us a ride into the nearest little town, which was Cantwell. It's about, we were about, oh, 12, 15 miles south of there. Well, the only problem was he was driving a pickup, and there were five of us. So we were not all going into Cantwell with him. So we decided Joel would go with him. I would stay in the car with the kids. I wasn't real concerned. It wasn't all that cold. We had the cold weather gear. We had plenty of gas so I could run the engine to get some heat as we needed it. So they set off and uh, we stayed in the car. Well, Joel got into Cantwell. It's a, not even a town. It's a village. It's very tiny. There's a lodge with a bar attached. There's a gas station and there's not very much else. So we went to the gas station and of course there was no tow truck to be had. There was no mechanic on call that was going to come and fix our car. So that wasn't going to work. So he went to the um, bar where the only people that he could be aware of were and rapped on the bar to get their attention and said, hey, 
my wife and my kids are stranded in the car on the side of the road about 12 miles south of here. Can somebody take me down there to get them? Well, they all kind of looked around at each other and were silent for a minute. And finally one lady said, you know, sir, none of us are in any shape to be driving in this, <laughs> and especially in this storm. So she said, but here are my keys. Take my car and go get your family. Well, I'm not going to embellish the story with a whole lot more details, but I do want you to know that it has a happy ending. <laughs> the car magically fixed itself. Joel got back to us in this woman's car. We tried our car again just to see what would happen, and lo and behold, it was quite happy to drive. So we cavalcaded on into Cantwell uh, in our car and the woman's car. When we got there, the attendant in the gas station was quite happy to let us park our car in the heated garage overnight. And it turned out he was able to diagnose what happened. The, this heavy, wet snow had packed up into the wheel wells so tightly that it pressed against the tires and they just couldn't turn. Oh, gosh. Who knew? Well, as we sat there waiting for Joel to come back and get us, the heat from um, us running the engine caused it, that to melt enough that it sort of started dropping off, and then the car could go again. So the car was fixed. Uh, there was room at the inn. We got the very last room at the lodge, spent the night there. The storm blew itself out overnight, and we drove on into Fairbanks safely the next morning. I never did learn the name of the man who pulled over who, when he saw these stranded motorists on the side of the road. And I never learned the name of the woman in the bar who loaned her car to a complete stranger with a dubious story. <laughs> but I will tell you, I have never forgotten these two snow angels. And All right. they were people who truly knew what it means to be a good neighbor. Oh, cool. Sue, thank you for that. All right, so two weeks ago, we laid down a challenge, and the challenge was to learn the names this summer of the residents of those eight households that are nearest you. You may have already done it. You may still be working on it. It may take you the whole summer. But, and I'm doing this at the risk of another flash of annoyance, I'm going to lay down a new challenge for this coming week, and here it is. I dare you to schedule 20 minutes this week as neighboring time. That might mean just calling a neighbor and asking how they're doing. It might mean hanging out in the front yard and just seeing what happens. Maybe take a lawn chair and a pitcher of lemonade and let God do the rest. 20 minutes in the conversation that results, you might just find yourself sitting at the feet of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>